Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey everybody, welcome into an all new episode of Can We Please Talk Podcast. As always, I am Mike Leon. I am flying this solo. Well, not yet. I'm going to bring in my co-pilot. My normal co-pilot, he's actually on a plane, maybe back home from the Dominican Republic. I don't know. I think he now is Dominican. He's been there so long in Punta Cana. We wish Nick well. In the words of Christopher Walken in Wedding Crashers, we sail without him. And joining me to co-pilot this plane is none other than my friend, Fox News contributor, former State Department spokesperson, former CIA analyst, former advisor to Secretary Kerry, Marie Harf. Marie, what job haven't you held in D.C.? Just real quick. <laughs> I mean, I can think of a bunch. I don't know. Anyone's <laughs> hiring? Uh, no, I feel very I feel very lucky to um, to get to be with you here tonight. There's so much going on. So there is you. so much. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you always coming on and giving us some time uh, on the program today. The latest on the fighting in Gaza between Israel and Hamas. The GOP's final primary debate was last week. And two of these people on this panel right now were on TV talking about it. Can you believe that, Marie? All right. <laughs> one plus one month away from the 2024 election voting cycle, starting with the primaries. It's time to get excited. Marie and I are going to give you some optimism to get excited. Well, if you're on the Democratic side, she's going to give you some optimism on why you should get excited. Um, Marie, first, I always say hello to Nick. I always try to find out how he's doing. How are you doing? Like, how, how's everything going to update us? I saw you earlier today. I sent you a photo. I was watching you on TV on a, on a flight home um, yeah. from my TV appearance. How's everything going? Update the audience. I mean, it's it's uh it's great to be with you uh, here. It's it's a busy time, right? There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on that's really hard, I think, 
um, and that I think is in the holiday season that's supposed to be very joyful. It's, it's hard. It feels hard right now. Right. But, you know, it's been nice. I, I got to escape to London for a long weekend with my husband. So not Punta Cana, but uh, a little colder. Right. And, you know, just just planning for the holidays with the family. It's just it's just there's I got to get through the next three weeks. Right. That's just true. Got to get through them. Yeah. It, it's so funny because I guess now that Nick and I have been doing this show, it's like we we wait to get past the holidays like you get to them but then you're like no let's get into like the next year because the next year is a political cycle like just like it was last year for us right these off years stink marie we got we got to get rid of them somehow i know i know they do and and there's also elections in off years right here in virginia right. we had some so it the election cycle never ends anymore i mean that's one thing we've learned and it's you know we're heading we're going to talk about it today but we're heading into i think uncharted territory yeah. right where a lot of political pundits and experts, people like you and I who talk on TV, there's a lot we don't know that there, a lot can happen, right? A lot can happen between now and Iowa. A lot can happen between now and the general election. It feels a little scary uh, in some ways, but we will bring some optimism too, of course. We will bring some optimism. I'm going to try to pivot for a second because I did, I did want to mention last week as we were, you and I were both recording on separate networks that compete with each other. Um, I, I couldn't help but reminisce because earlier in the day before the debates, and they were not asked about this to my recollection on the debates, but there was the shooting that happened at UNLV's campus where a 67 year old gunman killed three faculty members and he wounded a fourth. The police response in Las Vegas from all accounts and people on the ground, especially the ones that were running, they said they felt like the police were almost instantly there. Uh, I want to get your perspective because right now you're you're educating young minds at Georgetown University, and like this is this is such a scary uh, time. I in I, my time at Rutgers University, I know you went to Indiana. I I can't remember a time where we were ever locked down or had any type of emergency prepared system. Sounds like UNLV, according to law enforcement, not only officials but analysts uh, on the television sphere, that Las Vegas was very well prepared for this, and unfortunately three lives passed away. I just want to get your kind of your takeaways as, as somebody who's, yeah. who's worked in law enforcement uh, at one of the agencies and then also teaching right now on college campuses. Like what does Georgetown do for, for things like that? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. And and think Las Vegas has been through a lot of this. And if you think about the mass shooting they had that were so many people lost their lives, I think they probably have, un unfortunately, a lot of law enforcement has learned how to be prepared for this because they have to be. I mean, you're right at Georgetown. I, I, I remember the first time I, I taught and recently and thinking about how you lock the door, right? You have where, where, what classroom you teach in. Do you want to have windows? Do you not? I think it's just a really um, sad and depressing state of affairs that we have, that those are the conversations we have. I will also say that young people, not entirely across the political spectrum, but a lot of young people really deeply care about this issue because they have grown up in this world where they have to do active shooter drills. And when you and I were in college, we I, I can never remember a time, literally. I mean, I was in high school when Columbine happened, right? Um, I think a senior in high school or it, it, you know, older in high school. And that was shocking, but now it's just, it happens all the time. And you're seeing like after the shooting in Maine, how Jared Golden, a congressman from Maine, who's never been in support of assault weapons bans, never been in support of gun control legislation, said enough is enough, right? And it feels like um, the needle is slowly moving, but at what cost, right? At, at what price? And I think college students, I think high school students, I think people are just 
scared and you can't live life that way. And so you plan and you prepare and, and it's just, it shouldn't be the price that we pay to live in this country, which in so many ways is so wonderful, right? But this in this way, it's not. Yeah. You know, we recently had, I remember Bill McGinley, who worked in the Trump administration and um, he was doing something with Representative Moskowitz and, and I forget who on the on the Republican side of the aisle, but about like school safety and preparedness. And of course, at the end, Nick is like, and myself included, because this is a big hot button issue for me. It's like, but what about the guns? And he's like, look, right now we know where people are entrenched on the gun debate, but we're not going to wait for them. Let's do something without them. And then get them involved later on and see if, you know, because the gun debate is obviously separate than what the school can do to kind of make things uh, harder. I mean, this is, I don't even know how to phrase it, Marie, because it's so, it's so hard. My my thoughts and prayers are are with, with everybody that I hate saying that, like, because again, that's been like now (laughs) cannibalized. I know, but it's, but it's true. It also is true. Right. Right. So, so, but thoughts and prayers to the people out there, you know, I didn't want to forget about that because I remember that that was, and that was happening, I think, and I think it happened earlier in the day before the debate. We're going to get into the debate in a second. If I could say debate one more time, Maria, I probably win a prize. Um, and I remember <laughs> it was earlier in the day and I was like, man, I'm wondering if I'm going to get bumped, if they're going to like change around everything mm-hmm. with the debate because, you know, this is happening. So a uh, shout out to law enforcement for, you know, uh, dispelling that as fast as they could. All right. I want to pivot here. To not, I mean, Marie, the news cycle here, this A block right here. I mean, I'm sorry. I know we started on a high note, vacations, TVs. Now we get into the fighting that's happening over in Gaza. This is, uh, again, as of this recording, folks, the information. And if you just listened to the last episode, we had PBS uh, special correspondent, Layla Molana Allen. She's stationed out in Israel. She was there for the first six, six weeks of the war. She kindly joined us last week to kind of break down the war. And since since that episode, right, I mean, there's so much more that has happened. The UN's aid chief says that comprehensive humanitarian operation in Gaza is non-existent right now. Uh, there's over 15 and a half thousand people that are dead in Gaza. The, the attacks that happened on October 7th. Maria, I, I always start with this at the top of the show. And I want to shout out my buddy, Curran uh, O'Quinn over at O'Quinn Analytics. Uh, and he's the host of This Week Explained. He's a military analyst over there. And he always starts his show with the war in Ukraine and the importance of that and how that kind of affects the economic issues at times here that we're having on the global economy. And and shout out to him for doing that. I want to get your perspective, though, because the U.S. right now, not so much militarily, but through strategy operations is involved in two wars for all intent and purpose. And what's happening in Israel, we see it all the time. We've seen some harsher language from the vice president, from Lloyd Austin, Bernie Sanders about conditioning aid. I want to get your takeaways on October 7th to now and how there's no end in sight for that. And then the counterbalance of what's still happening in Ukraine. There's still people dying in Ukraine. There's still Mm -hmm. attacks happening in Ukraine. That's been the focal point of both of the debates. We're going to get into that in a second, but just give me a high level overview as you've been analyzing this, somebody that worked at the state department, what would you, what would you, what would be going on right now in your world if this was happening? Yeah. I mean, it it seems like October 7th was very recently and also like so much has happened since then, right? It feels like, um, 
Israel has started the Hanukkah season, which is supposed to be a, a celebration of light and joy um, in a place that feels really tough, right? Really, really sad, really, really challenging. I mean, I think before October 7th, there were deep divisions in Israel, first and foremost, in our country and around the world about Prime Minister Netanyahu, about the future of Israeli democracy, about the future of a two-state solution with the Palestinians. And October 7th, in many ways, I think, changed all of that calculation. I mean, on the Democratic side, Joe Biden is a deeply pro-Israel Democrat and president. Um, he's sort of an old school Democrat. He talked about meeting Golda Meir um, on his first trip, which just reminds people of his age. But regardless, it was a good story. And um, he deeply, deeply feels this. I think this, this um, and you see it in the policies. He's getting a lot of criticism. You mentioned Bernie Sanders, a lot of criticism from the left, uh, parts of the far left, I should say, in the party, um, because of his very staunchly pro, pro-Israel position. I think where we are now, I think we can all agree on certain things, or I hope we can. Number one, that Hamas is a terrorist organization and Israel should be able to do what it can to prevent Hamas from being able to attack and kill Israelis. Now, how they do that is one of the things that's a a question mark, right? How do you minimize civilian casualties? How do you, I mean, setting aside how did they miss this, right? The intelligence failure, which I really would love to to get more into at some point uh, as well, because I think it's it's pretty egregious, of course. Um, so, So they should be able to destroy Hamas or prevent them from attacking Israelis. They should work to get humanitarian aid to the Palestinians. And going forward, they have to deal with this group of humans who lives in territory controlled uh, in large part by Israel. This is not, you know, when the fighting ends, however it ends, and we don't know how it will end. um, There's still the question of what to do with a group of people without a state. And, and, will still be there, even if Hamas isn't, or if Hamas looks very different. So I think what you've heard the vice president do, you referenced it, Mike, is start to talk about that again, right? Because a lot of us were very uh, upset with Prime Minister Netanyahu, believing that everything he's done over decades, but certainly over a number of years, has been designed to kill any possibility of a two-state solution. He's changing the conditions on the ground to make it virtually impossible. So at the end of the day, you know, first and foremost, Israel has to defend itself after they end this war in whatever way they decide to do that. Um, what comes next? Who controls Gaza? Who do you negotiate with? Right. Who, who all of that? I, I don't know that that they know. I mean, there are no easy answers, but we have to start thinking about that piece of it. You know, one of the things in the last episode, I alluded to it, Leila Molana Allen, who, who's been there, covered the region, stationed in Egypt, Israel, Lebanon. And she said right now at this rate that Israel is bombing and killing one militant per 2000 residents, I believe, is the statistic that she gave us in the last episode. I'd have to fact check that. But that's the ratio that they're going at. And we saw the IDF recently claim and they showed a photo of what was a tunnel perceived with Hamas leaders and about five of them that have been killed so far. But when you look at the civilian deaths that are happening, like that is so many people that are innocently being killed and you're not killing that many of the Hamas terrorists that we've talked about. And it's so funny, by the way, Marie, 
your answer is very similar to your old boss, Representative Seth Moulton, who was on here a few weeks ago. Good. Way, you, good you can he see, listened to me. I That's was going to say, you can see where <laughs> the communications come in. But wait, I want to get back to you were talking about the intelligence failures. So let's stay on it because I asked you before, Secretary of State John Kerry, you were an advisor to him. Um, you, right now, this is happening. He's a Secretary of State, right? And you find out about this report. What are the wheels spinning like in the State Department reading this? Now, again, Israel has said in the New York Times cited this 40 page document and that Israel reportedly obtained. It predicted many of the steps that were going to be taken. They've denied parts of it. Uh, I know John Kirby had said that the intelligence community on the U.S. side was was still taking a look into it. This was days ago. But uh, like what's going in through your mind right now as you're advising the secretary of state? What do you think is going on with Anthony Blinken's team right now as they're kind of formulating this? Because everybody has alluded that this is going to be the second part. First, Bibi has said, eliminate Hamas. We don't know if that's realistic. Any journalist that's covering it or a military analyst will say, we don't know if that's realistic. The second part is when there is a truce, ceasefire, an elimination, whatever, Two parts, what happens in Gaza and who is running that? But the mm-hmm. second part is, how did this all start? <laughs> and, and not 1948, how did this all start, 1947. I'm talking like, how did October 7th slip through the cracks? So let's get yeah. into that. What's going on in the State Department with Marie Harf? I mean, the third piece that you didn't mention is the hostages, right? There are still right. American hostages there. And the host- and it, of course, Israeli hostages, other, other countries' hostages there. And that impacts the first part. So, you know, we we saw the pauses, the ceasefires to get groups of hostages out. Um, I mean, I think what Bill Burns at the CIA and what the State Department are doing is doing a lot of negotiating in Qatar with the Qataris, playing a mediating role with Hamas to try and get more hostages out. And I think that's why you saw at the beginning of the conflict, the Israelis wait a little bit longer than many people thought that they would wait to start really um, taking the fight to Hamas. So... I think that what you see, what I think is going on behind the scenes is increasing, um, I don't want to say pressure, but conversations with the Israelis about civilian casualties, about about how they are prosecuting this war, about what um, what is the actual the future, right, for, for Gaza, for the Palestinian Authority, for uh, the peace process, right? I think, I think, what is happening behind the scene. I hope that's what's happening behind the scenes at the State Department, because, you know, this is, you can kill every Hamas terrorist you can find, you can, you know, blow up their tunnels, you can try and get rid of their financing from Gulf states, you can do all of that. But at the end of the day, if you don't fix the Palestinian um, problem, right, the challenge with the Palestinian people not having a home, not having a state of their own with full rights, uh, I, I think that Israel will still be less secure than it should be. And, and look, I think, I think, but to, and to your point about the intelligence failure, you know, the Israelis have to decide if Prime Minister Netanyahu is the right leader to, to take them forward now. And I can't speak for them. Certainly, I can't tell them what to do. But you see it if you look at the Israeli press. If you see people were mad at him before October seventh, then there was this sort of rally around, you know, which happened. And then it's like, wait a second, did he really know some of this? Did he ignore it? Did they? I mean, was he too focused on other things? Was I, I, I think genuinely Israelis are, are having a debate right now about who should lead them forward in this really difficult time. 
Can I can I ask you? Uh, and Nick love, loves doing this a moment of literacy, but. For people that are watching this, and we're going to get into it in the debate because Vivek Ramaswamy has talked about laying off 75% of the federal workforce that's in Washington, D.C., a bunch of your old colleagues. Can you kind of take us a little bit of what is the State Department's role in mediation, other things, you know, hostage negotiation, which you just mentioned? Take us through what is the actual State Department's role in the middle of all these other agencies between DHS and between DIA, FBI, CIA, like where does the State Department live in all of this? Well, they they have a couple of roles, right? First and foremost, one of their main responsibilities is American citizens overseas. So when it was clear that Americans were killed by Hamas when they were taken hostage, if there are, Amer- there are American citizens in, or dual citizens, right, in Gaza, like providing services to those people, that's who does it overseas, is U.S. diplomats who are willing to serve in dangerous and difficult places to provide services to Americans. And for everyone who travels overseas, um, they they should be comforted by that fact. Now, we're not miracle workers, right? If you go to Iran, if you go to North Korea, that's a little harder. Um, But, you know, in in Israel and Gaza, I think that's certainly true. I think that um, when it comes to the diplomacy, certainly... Negotiating, you know, Bill Burns is doing a lot of the negotiating with Hamas through the Qataris, but there are lots of State Department people that are in those negotiations, right? How do we, um, how do we get these folks out? How do we get them home? How do we, uh, do they need medical care? Do they, how do we deal with their families? Like all of those logistics are things that the State Department does. But then also working with the Israeli government and the Israeli military. Because a lot, you know, foreign military assistance, a lot of that goes to the State Department, right? What do you need? What do you need to prosecute this war? Um, uh, starting to talk to them about diplomatic efforts uh, with the Palestinians at the end of this. Like all of those things um, are things that the State Department is doing. And I can guarantee you my former colleagues at the intelligence community are digging into this issue of how they missed it, how we missed it too, clearly, um, and how to prevent uh, attacks from happening again. Right. You often see in the aftermath of these attacks uptick in threat reporting because of copycats or people who are sort of motivated by it. And so I'm sure right now they're working very hard to make sure that doesn't happen. And, you know, Vivek is a joker. We'll talk about that later. But, um, you know, I'm sure if Vivek were overseas and needed a passport expedited for him, he would want someone to answer the phone for him. That's right. The State Department, you know, I think he would, you know, uh, (laughs) FBI Director Christopher Wray. Uh, DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, they both mentioned it separately, one on Capitol Hill, one in an interview with CNN that um, alarm bells are ringing for them all the time yes. right now with respect to the threats that are happening. I, one thing I wanted to clarify from earlier, and again, this is as of this taping, so numbers are subject to change, but at least 17,200 Palestinians have been killed in the Israeli attacks in Gaza since October 7th, again, a spokesperson for the health ministry in Palestine, which is obviously controlled by Hamas. At least 634 people have crossed into Egypt. This was as of end of last week through the Rafah border crossing. Uh, and there's about 70 or so aid trucks that entered last week with nearly 21,000 gallons of fuel, according to the Rafah crossing authority. I, I encourage everybody because we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and, and talk about the GOP debate. 
and some of their solutions to some of this, if, if any of it is actually actionable. Um, but I encourage people to go listen to the previous episode if you haven't already. Uh, uh, and what we broke down with respect to the Israel-Hamas war from somebody who's covering it on the ground does a great job over at PBS. All right, when we come back after the break, Marie and I are going to tell you, did you watch something that didn't matter last week <laughs> on the GOP side? More on <laughs> when we come back after the break. Nick, today's episode is presented as always by our friends over at Fresh Roasted Coffee. Since 2009, their passion has always been bringing you gourmet coffees from all over the world, roasted fresh to order. I got my coffee snob here, Nick Saveri. Nick, tell these people, coffee snob it up here. Tell these people why Fresh Roasted Coffee is so good and why they're the official sponsor of Can We Please Talk? 
you know, often the best cup of coffee that you're ever going to have is the one you can you can make from home, and you need good quality coffee to do that. And that's what Fresh Roasted Coffee offers. You know, between single origin, between blends, flavors, anything on the coffee spectrum they've got. But more importantly, and I can't stress this enough. Often when you purchase coffee, you don't know where to start. I mean, there's so many different varieties, so many different opportunities, so many different things you could choose from. And Fresh Roasted Coffee just gives you a very simple questionnaire and just says, hey, figure out what your cup, what your coffee cup is. Figure out what blend works for you. I've gotten some single origin recommendations, so is Mike, and that's influenced everything. And what they recommend, you can get in a Keurig cup, the way Mike takes it. You can take it in the way I do it, which is typically through a French press or you can get it for a percolator. Whatever coffee machine you've got, they've got you covered. But more importantly, just a huge variety and a way to learn more about coffee itself. And all of this is available at freshroastedcoffee.com on their site. One cup is all it takes to fall in love with fresh roasted coffee. But you get a discount for being a listener of Can We Please Talk. Enter in the promo code Can We Please Get 20 to get 20% off your first purchase. Head to freshroastedcoffee.com today. All right, the fourth GOP debate happened last week in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, on the campus of a school that didn't deserve to get into the college football playoff. That's right. You heard it here first. I'm a Florida State guy. So Amen. Uh, Amen to that, Mike. Okay. So and now we pivot. Uh, because uh after they're gonna get into the playoff and probably win the freaking thing, uh, they held this debate and in the words of uh Mike Norville, the FSU coach, I don't know if it mattered. Because do the games matter? Did this debate matter? If you missed the four candidates that were on stage, Nikki Haley, obviously former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, Vivek Ramaswamy, and then Florida Governor, my governor here in the state of Florida, Ron DeSantis, dueled it out on News Nation. Megyn Kelly, Elizabeth Vargas uh, were moderating, and there was some back and forths. If you missed it, take a listen. You do this at every debate. You go out on the stump and you say something. All of us see it on video. We confront you on the debate stage. You say you didn't say it, and then you back away. And I want to I'll say tell you what. Exactly no, what I, I said, Chris. I'm not I done yet. Well, this now is now look. Hold this on. is not a steal. This is not a steal. Nonsense. Let me tell you something. This is the fourth debate. The fourth debate that you would be voted in the first 20 minutes as the most obnoxious blowhard in America. So <laughs> shut up for a while. We're now 25 minutes into this debate, and he has insulted Nikki Haley's basic intelligence, not her positions, her basic intelligence. She doesn't know regions. She wouldn't be able to find something on a map that his three-year-old could find. Look, if you want to disagree on issues, that's fine. And Nikki and I disagree on some issues. But I'll tell you this, I've known her for 12 years, which is longer than he's even started to vote in a Republican primary. <laughs> I love all the attention, fellas. Thank you for that. <laughs> and in terms of these donors that are supporting me, they're just yeah. jealous. To be uh, I think we need to have somebody younger. I think when you get up to 80, I don't think it's a job for that. Is we he do fit not or want to do someone You're talking about him being 80, 80 years old. It doesn't old. mean Ron, that somebody could get elected. That's Ron, and if you want somebody who's going to speak truth to power, then vote for somebody who's going to speak the truth to you. Why am I the only person on the stage, at least, who can say that January 6th now does look like it was an inside job? That the government lied to us for 20 years about Saudi Arabia's involvement in 
that the great replacement theory is not some grand right-wing conspiracy theory, but a basic statement of the Democratic Party's platform, that the 2020 election was indeed stolen by big tech. That was a lot. Um, a bunch Here's there. Here's your new governor there. Chris Christie's back. Yeah, back. I know. Seriously, my old governor when I was living in New Jersey. Um, so there's your so guy. much. there's so much there. Um, there's tons of articles everywhere. If you just type in fourth debate, like the first 11 articles that pop up, will tell you who won, who lost. Uh, you know, there's, we're going to play a clip in a second from Lawrence Jones over at your, at the network you work at at Fox news, doing something with a voter who was swayed one way coming into the debate left another way for another candidate, but high level for you, what'd you make of this fourth debate and I made this analogy on television about that it feels very preseason. It feels very, we're all waiting to get to the regular season. And I don't know if this game matters. These are people that I'm not relying on, aka GOP primary voters, according to polls, are not relying on. They like the big guy. They like, and they would say that that's Joe Biden, but the big guy yeah. being <laughs> former, former President Trump. So like, what do you make of what we just heard and watched there? Well, first of all, I love that you did debate rap on CNN. That was great. It oh, was like you. having you out there on, on cable, man. I, I, I bring it to the, to the big screen. I love it. Um, I mean, look, DeSantis had his best debate, but that's a low bar, right? He's a weird, awkward politician. All the memes today, he like, when he's not talking, he looked weird. He just, he's just a weird, awkward dude. And look, Nikki Haley's clearly the front runner of those four. Ron DeSantis and Vivek were just, I mean, going after her. And I think for the most part, she did a pretty good job. She hit back where she could. She stayed above it, right? That one of the times when they offered her the chance to respond to Vivek and she said, he's not even worth my time. You know, and when she said, they're just jealous, I'm taking their donors. Look, I think DeSantis probably landed some punches. Um, whether that translates to all of the donors who have been fleeing him coming back, I don't know, right? Um, Chris Christie was kind of his old self. I liked seeing him back like that. But at the end of the day, Trump is still ahead by double digits. And I just, Mike, for the life of me, I know that people love Donald Trump, but he's not showing up for debates. He is indicted. He has dozens of criminal felony charges against him. He was back in court again last week. He says insane things. I, I just, maybe primary voters will still love him. But Nikki Haley is the only one on that stage who's talking like a general election candidate. Because you and I know that this election will come down to like a couple thousand voters in five states, probably. Right. You know, four or five states. And Donald Trump has a ceiling on those voters. Independents, suburban women, you know. And Nikki Haley's talking like a general election candidate. But I just, I don't get it. I don't get it, man. Look, I mean, I have nothing to add to that. You just said what I was going to say, but it's true, though, in terms of the way she's been talking and she's mentioned in our interviews uh, post these debates and in the spin room, she has said, uh, we're going to bring in a new coalition of independents, of moderates, of Latinos, a.k.a. the person hosting this show. And so she has mentioned that a bunch and she is speaking like a general elect, uh, election candidate. Ron DeSantis is not speaking like that. He's speaking like what Chris Christie said, somebody that's very timid of going after Trump, minus the little back and forth they had in this fourth debate about his age. I wanted to get to two things there that, that kind of you just said, because we heard in the montage 
uh, Vivek Ramaswamy was some, they're not even half truths. They're not even insane. real truths. That, yeah, insane Insanity. things. So I, yeah. I just want to dispel some of these things real quick here because he said about 2020 election was stolen by big tech. And there's this whole Twitter files thing, Elon Musk thing that's kind of happened. Uh, all these stories were being covered by some other networks. And I have talked about this ad nauseum because this is my wheelhouse. I've worked in product and technology for 15 years. I've crafted terms of use, privacy policy uh, conditions with legal folks. So that when you hit that little button that says, upset, excuse me, you hit that little button that says accept on your app, but you didn't read the thing. We're counting on you to not read that. So that way we know if we want to kick you off the platform, we can kick you off the platform because it's content moderation. It's a private company. You don't like it. Start your own thing. And again, we're covered by the law. That's why we have lawyers review these things. So he said a bunch of things there. But what do you make of him so far? He's kind of like this. He's kind of like Guam. I like to call him. He's kind of like independent right now. He's like floating on his own. Uh, we're waiting for a true consolidation of these candidates. But Vivek has no voters that, you know, like if Nikki Haley dropped out, maybe they go to Ron DeSantis. If Chris Christie's voters go drop out, or how many they are, uh, they go to Nikki Haley like... Who are the Vivek voters out there? So let's talk a little bit about the guy who was the loudest voice and, and some of the stuff that he said there. What, what do you make of some of the things that he said? I mean, I, that's, I don't want to compare him to Guam. People like Guam. Nobody <laughs> likes Vivek. He, is, he was a jerk. He was a bully. He was mean, especially to Nikki Haley. I do think he has a woman problem. He is awful the way he, he went after her. Um, those conspiracy theories, you know, January 6th was an inside job, 9-11, like he is lunatic. And you're right that he and Chris Christie don't have a ton of votes, but the one of the problems is between DeSantis, you know, if three of those four dropped out and you could cobble together a coalition, you could maybe get close to Trump in a place like New Hampshire or South Carolina, right? And so, I mean, Chris Christie has what, 5% or something in New Hampshire. I forget the, I forget the latest polls. That's, those are, that's real numbers, right? When Nikki's in the high teens. So Vivek is I, like, I, what do you think his play is? I think he's just, I think he's a jerk. And I think he's like a poor man's version of Trump and says the craziest things. I don't know if he believes them or not, but it is, it made the atmosphere chaotic. Largely, it was him who made the atmosphere chaotic and so unserious. Like it made the Repu it makes the Republican Party look like a wholly unserious group of humans. And Nikki Haley's trying to be the adult. Chris Christie's trying to be the adult. And you know, it yep. just it just it made cancer on that stage. Well, it really I, is. I, I, you fed into a follow up about adult in the room. I want to play something from you from your network in a second, but I do want to get back to Vivek. For a guy who's written these books and was a CEO of biotech, and you would think just off those two things alone, writing a book, right? Who has time to write a book? That he's a smart guy, that he understands things. At a, at a core level, he understands things. The fact that he doesn't get some of these small things about how social media companies work and how they're protected right now, right, under the law. Right. How he doesn't get some of these basic things like what happens when you leave public service, which I want to get from you, because he said something accusing Nikki Haley oh, I know. Of, of public service 
leaving public service and going into the private sector. I want, I want you, you've done this. You worked in the government and went to I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't on the Boeing board. No, you were not. I wish you were, right? Maybe you would have gotten these. You and me both. Exactly. So let's play this clip. I want to react on the other side. I want to preface a question for you. So take a listen to this. Nikki, you were bankrupt when you left the UN. After you left the UN, you became a military contractor. You actually started joining service on the board of Boeing, whose back you scratched for a very long time, and then gave foreign multinational speeches like Hillary Clinton is. And now you're a multimillionaire. That math does not add up. It adds up to the fact that you are corrupt. And to say that doesn't affect her is false, because it's after that meeting later that day that she says that every American needs to be doxxed by having their ID, their government-issued ID, tied to what they say on the internet. All right, so there, there's a couple things there. The first thing is I want to tackle the second part. I want you to answer the first part. Second part, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter have all instituted verification services that ask you for your ID so that way they know you're a real human being and that way we don't have bots. So which one is it, Vivek? Do you want people to be real humans on these social media platforms that are, again, private companies? You're free, free to start your own. You can contact Amazon Web Services. I hope you roadmap the product. We can build it together, buddy. But it's a <laughs> private company. For all my legal beagles that are listening to this, I'm sorry. I've, I've, I've gone through this with legal departments at big companies, some of the apps that you use right now in the marketplace. So that's the first thing. Like, and she clarified what she said later on in the debate. The, f- the first part that he mentioned there about what happened when she left, she wasn't bankrupt when she left as UN ambassador, but she went into the private sector, which a lot of the folks that go in, are in public service, when they leave in the private sector, I said this on TV, you go, you, one of four things, Marie, you're doing a couple of them. You, you can teach at a school and be a professor mm-hmm. because you're a subject matter expert. You go on TV, you're an analyst because you're paid for some of the subject matter expertise that you have. You write a book, given mm-hmm. the clearances and what the subject matter is about. You've got to have to clear that with your old employers. Or you do get into the private sector that's still public service adjacent. And it's working for a company where you still have a clearance. There's 4 million clearance holders out there. You can tell I've done my homework on this, but by the way, Marie. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can, can work. Thank you. And you can work for one of these companies that are adjacent. This is kind of the way that DC, Virginia works. Am I far off there? Can you kind of explain for Vivek, who says he's a smart guy, how this <laughs> works when you leave public office and go into the private sector? Sure. And and look, I love Nikki Haley's response because she said we weren't broke when we left the UN. It may look broke to you. Like it was really, I liked that response. Um, you know, there are, and, and just to be clear, public service is not, no one goes into public service for the money, right? So when you decide to leave government or when your side loses and you have to leave government, it is totally, I think, like normal practice to try and a lot of people try and find things that will pay them more money where they can continue to serve. Right. So Boeing is a company. I mean, she mentioned it. They make airplanes for the air force. They make a whole number of things, right. That our country benefits from in so many ways. And she talked about being a military spouse and how, you know, that's one of the reasons she wanted to go to Boeing. Did she make a bunch of money? Sure. Um, for a company that I think is a pretty good company and that uh, is doing really good things, including for the United States military, yes. 
And so, um, and it's what, like you said, it's what a lot of people do, right? A lot of people serve on boards. They go work for these private companies. Do they make more than they did in government service? Absolutely. Okay. Does that mean that she's corrupt because she did that? That is ludicrous. I mean, the problem with Vivek is he actually had a substantive point that he calls her a neocon. I don't think she's a neocon, but he disagrees with her on foreign policy, right? He thinks she is, um, has a more activist ideas about foreign policy, right? And he was trying to tie that to her work for Boeing. You know, he said, she'll send your sons and daughters overseas to die to make money, which is so gross and crass, but right, he said that. But because he's such a jerk and personalizes it, right? Um, talking about how they were broke and how she made all this money, comparing her to Hillary Clinton. I mean, she did what lots of former ambassadors do. They leave public service, by the way, because their side loses often. They go work for companies who will pay them money because of their expertise and their and their um, their relationships. There's nothing corrupt about that unless you are a corrupt person and you do corrupt things with it. Right. And, you know, he just he personalized it with her. And the point about he tried to make, you know, when he was talking about Ukraine, you can't even name three provinces of Ukraine. Like, stop it. Why are you? And she could, A. <laughs> um, but yeah, he just, he doesn't, for a guy that's made a lot of money in the private sector, he was bizarrely critical of the private sector last night, including in that exchange, right? You know, and I forgot, speaking engagements, because, yes, you can, right. I mean, listen, this is what happens when baseball players, football players retire and they yeah. sign autographs and they go to speaking engagements and they're yeah. going to get paid. I mean, they're not going to get paid the same as an athlete, but that's because, like you said, you don't get into public service for the money. And by the way, I had alluded to this somewhere else. There's a Washington Post article mm -hmm. from uh, Mavie Reston. I want to get the the um, author's name correct. She had disclosed her speaking fees, corporate board positions in this in a huge disclosure thing. She earned about 1.2 million to as much as 12 million, delivering about 12 different speeches across the globe of March of 20 from March to January of, of this past year. So this was according to the FEC. So this was all in like mid-May that this article came down. She had stepped down uh, and she was getting money from these speaking engagements. She had a salary from Great Southern Homes, which is a company based in South Carolina, where she was making reported income of about 100 grand a year just from that. So like you said, this is all public knowledge and it's not illegal unless, like you said, you can prove something. It's almost right. like the James Comer stuff. Like unless you can prove something, all you can prove yeah. is the guy got money from. <laughs> Come on, give me a break. Okay. Right. It's like Vivek likes capitalism, but not that much. Like it's so. It was bizarre that he, you know, she made too much money. Like what? I don't understand. I, I, I want to make that too much money, <laughs> like that. I mean, me too. Exactly. All right. <laughs> Let's. Uh, speaking of optimism about making money, or the economy is always the biggest issue with voters. Twenty twenty four is steamrolling down here. We've only got a few weeks left in 2023. There was a recent poll I saw on 538, and it was from 538 combination with Morning Consult. About 5,800 registered voters in a 43-43 percentage tie between current President Joe Biden, former President Donald Trump. We just talked about the folks that are vying to knock Trump off <laughs> when they don't. Mm. What do we mm -hmm. do about this 2024 matchup between current and former president. There's a challenger right now in Representative Dean Phillips from Minnesota that wants more people to enter on the Democratic side. 
let me get the uh, the person who once worked for the Obama campaign. Let me get <laughs> your opinion first on Dean Phillips and entering what is a democratic process. And he's allowed to do this and stuff like that. There's no nothing wrong with that. Um, but Dean, you're not going to win. You know that. But what do you make of his candidacy? And then outlook for 24. What do you want to see Democrats start doing more of? Because the Republicans right now, they're they're trying to they're all behind Trump, at least a large portion of them. And then maybe there's this coalition that merges after Iowa to try to take on Trump. Maybe Democratic mm-hmm. side. Everyone says, I don't know if I trust Biden. You got the Israel Palestine things now. We've seen a bunch of uh, Jewish voters and Palestinian voters and the way they say that they won't vote for Joe Biden anymore, at least if you check social media and uh, whatever the algorithm's feeding you. But what do you make of Dean Phillips? And then Joe Biden into 2024 and the Democratic message. So, yes. So Dean Phillips. So God bless Dean Phillips, Mike. Um, I mean, he's not he's not going to win and he's most likely going to hurt Joe Biden if he does anything at all. So, look, a bunch of people who this world on the Democratic side wish that Joe Biden wasn't running or that we had a more competitive process, maybe. But, um, you know, we are where we are. And I think that Dean Phillips, what he's doing, if it hurts Joe Biden, is quite irresponsible. Um, I don't know that it will. I think that I'm more worried about people like Robert Kennedy Jr. and, you know, Cornell West and Jill Stein than I am about Dean Phillips. I just think he's he's embarrassing himself and he should not do it. Um, I, you know, I get what he's trying to do, but he's, he's not going to succeed. And he has the real potential to hurt to hurt the president. So look, polls a year out are not predictive, certainly. I think a couple of things are true. I think that elections are choices, they're not referenda. And so yes, Joe Biden has low approval ratings, so does Donald Trump. And uh, yes, some people think that Biden's numbers are gonna go down because of Israel-Palestine. It is hard for me to believe that a lot of those people are gonna vote for Donald Trump. I mean, they might not vote, which is a concern. So I am, I believe a few things. One, I believe Democrats need to get their butts in gear and they need to do a better job of messaging what Joe Biden has done, particularly on the economy. I think there's good economic news and I think we have not done a good job messaging it. I think think they haven't done a good job messaging across the board. Now, the campaign hasn't really started yet, right? Let the Republicans duke it out, but I think they need to do this better. I think we need to be worried about this. I also think that every time Donald Trump has been atop the Republican Party since he won in 2016, every other election, midterm, general, Republicans have underperformed. They've Democrats have overperformed historical trends because Donald Trump is pulling down the party. Every time abortion has been on the ballot, women's health, Democrats are overperforming. So I'm worried because the consequences of the Donald Trump presidency are horrific. I'm worried because the thing people like least about Joe Biden is the one thing he can't change or message around, right? His age. Um, he's also the only one who's ever beaten Trump at a ballot box. So I think that um, he has, I would rather be Joe Biden than Donald Trump today, electorally speaking, but I think Democrats have a hell of a lot of work to do. And I wanna make sure they do it. So sitting here in December, 2023, um, that's how I, I don't know. That's how I'm looking at it, but how are you looking at it? Well, I mean, I did want to ask you real quick though, cause I'm looking at it. <clears throat> I'm with you on messaging message to what 
you've done strength wise. And it, that's kind of why, and by the way, we've invited Dean Phillips on the program and I'm going to ask him this. If he comes on, why not just be a surrogate, a pseudo surrogate for mm-hmm. the president? If you truly feel you voted with him hundred percent of the time, mm-hmm. which has been shown and he's not refuted. You just don't think a Biden Harris ticket would win right now based on November polls. Cause he said this a couple of weeks ago when he announced, um, which is, asinine to think that you're running solely based on data right now from registered voters and not a year from now when everyone knows voters have short-term memory um mm-hmm. i that i just don't get why he's jumping into the race so so I, I'm, I'm with you i think more tv and then the campaign hasn't started yet more tv but i'm just curious as to why why wouldn't dean phillips let me ask you why you're, you're steve schmidt's obviously his campaign manager on this Let's say he's like, you know what? I need Marie Harf. I need Marie Harf on Dean Phillips' campaign. I know you're not taking the call, but like, what would you, no. would you be? What would you be telling Dean Phillips if he had asked you about, hey, I want to run and I want you to run this campaign because you know that there's an incumbent right now. You know, you know that's why Gavin Newsom is not doing anything. Like, what would you say to him about not doing this and actually going out there and being a, a pseudo surrogate for the president and messaging yeah. about some of these things? I mean, and look, Newsom's being very smart, by the way, debating Ron DeSantis on Fox. Like, Newsom is playing this very well. Look, if I would, I would say to someone like Dean Phillips, if they had come to me and asked that they should run, is look, we, I don't disagree that we have reason to be concerned, but data doesn't lie, right? And our, and and there is no path for a Democrat other than Joe Biden to be the nominee, short of him no longer being with us. God forbid, right? I think there is no path. And so if you take that as a given, all you are doing is potentially hurting Joe Biden and your own career, right? I mean, Dean Phillips, by all accounts, is like a good member of Congress. I didn't know him very well. Um, I didn't know him personally at all. But um, if you're not going to win, this is not the time for sort of moral victories and making... uh, statements of principle. This is the time to make sure Donald Trump is not president again. So if there's no path, then get out of the way and help. Be a surrogate. To your point, be a surrogate. Get out there. Get out there on the campaign trail. Um, try and help him get reelected. Um, you know, I, I don't, I, I get what he's trying to do, but reality is reality. And Elections are choices, and this one looks like it's going to be a choice between two candidates that a lot of Americans aren't enthusiastic about, and campaign's job is to make them enthusiastic enough to go vote. That's it, especially in the states that matter. That's it. That's it. I can't I can't put anything else on it. I'm not going to. We're going to leave it all there. Marie, thank you so much for hopping on the program with us and always continue success. You know you're always welcome back in 2024. We're going to talk more all about, all about this. So thanks for hopping on with us, Marie. I loved it. I love I love the program. I love everything you're doing. It was great to wrap up the year with you. It's been a weird year. There's a lot that's happened and we all need to get some rest before 2024. That is very <laughs> well said. And by the way, if you want to watch the video portions of any of the interviews we've done on our show, head over to our YouTube channel, type in Can We Please Talk Podcast. If you're watching us on YouTube right now, thank you. Hit the subscribe button for me. Audio podcast platform, you know by now, Apple, Spotify, Google. Shout out to everybody who listens to us on Good Pods. Shout out to ACAST, our hosting platform. We can't do it, Adam. I say this all the time. I truly mean it. 
We can't do it without each and every one of you that listens to this program. As always, I'm Mike Leon. Nick, safe flight home, buddy. We'll see you when you get back, and we'll see everybody next time. 